Steve Martinez, Nicole Salazar, Honey Masood, Rabbi Karen, Mike DeFlippo, Peter Curry's, Miguel Nagera, Engineer. Special thanks to Becca Staley, Julie Crosby, Nick Gillick, Hugh Grant, Samantha Chambly, Jessel Noor, John Gerberg, Vesta Godars. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. It's the Alternative Show with Trevor Thomas. Hello and welcome to my third episode of The Alternative Show. My name is Trevor Thomas and the theme today is uh, freedom. Uh, Hold on just one second here. (laughs)
Okay, so that was uh, Enya, now we are free. Um, today's topic is technically freedom, but in reality, it is Avatar, the movie. Last week we talked about a number of different things, and at the end I said we were going to segue into Avatar this week, which is indeed true. So I wanted to start out by um, talking to you a little bit about some of the stuff we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about two things. One, the idea that... Um, chances are you know someone who has killed somebody. And two, the idea that you also know someone who has saved a life. And I wanted to expand on that just a little bit. The, I got some more information since I talked to you. Uh, I talked to my dad a little bit, and he had a lot of things to say on this. And I also found some information that I didn't get to talk about last time that I wanted to plug in here. So uh, to start out with... Um, and start with a quote from Margaret Mead, who's an anthropologist. She's, she said that no society that feeds its children on tales of successful violence can expect them not to believe that violence is the end reward. Which is very much related to the theme that we're going to talk about today, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, I want to continue with this. Uh, See, she knew that ancient societies that taught violence to the children in the form of stories were themselves likely to have an average lifespan for males of fewer than 30 years because many of them would die in wars. She also knew that if you teach violence and war to children, they'll be warriors as adults. Teaching war means in story form. Just as much teaching today is conveyed through stories. Today we do this through conversations around the kitchen table, through television, video games, or movies, and with war toys that prime young children before they have any real concept of what war is and the devastation it wreaks. I know there's been a lot of controversy about video games and movies and teaching war and violence and, and things like that, and to some degree I agree and to some degree I don't. I read a lot of comic books when I was growing up. Um, and they probably influenced me, and I also played a lot of video games, some of it before I kind of knew the difference between what's good and bad. But for the most part, uh, that kind of thing was more of a way to get those feelings out than to create them. Now, I know that's not true for everyone. I think everyone has a different reaction to that kind of thing. I've I definitely had friends and... and yeah, family members and stuff that reacted completely the opposite to violence. They were actually, you know, fueled by this information. And I know for myself, if I spend too much time, like, watching a whole bunch of crazy war movies or playing a video game or something, it gets stuck in my head. Like, uh, this one time I played Half-Life 2 for, like, a very long time, a few hours, and I tried driving home afterwards, and it just felt like I was in the video game. Like, I was just completely expecting zombies and head crabs to just sort of jump out of anywhere. For those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so continuing, the, the, the piece that I talked about with my dad, he's actually someone that spent a good deal of time working with inmates, which I thought was really interesting. Um, he uh, would go and visit a local jail and talk to a lot of the people there and kind of work with them and interact and teach them and learn from them. And a lot of these people were pretty hardcore. I think some of them were, you know, death row inmates and things. So this wasn't like a, uh, a you know, like a celebrity prison where you've got cushy couches and, and TV and stuff. This was this was one of the more hardcore ones. And uh, and uh, he learned a lot from it. And he shared a lot with it of that with me. Um, 
in response to last week's radio show, which I really appreciate. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit about what he said. Um, Okay, so in talking about prison, it's a place where you have to consciously work on being alive, in appreciation for what you have, and in particular on yourself if you wish to make it at all intact. Lone wolves get cut down. You survive by means of cooperation or you will not survive. Uh, That may sound a little weird, especially for most of the prison movies they show you, but uh, prison is about community, many competing communities which basically do not like or trust each other. Um, What else? Let's see. Um, Prison is often about bluster. The strong survive, yet those who do the best are honest about their feelings, about who they are and what they are there for. Those who allow anger to consume them end up perishing one way or the other. Those who forgive themselves and others prosper. It is yourself whom you generally forgive last. I'm going to take a quick break from this and play uh, the quote of the week, which actually this is a perfect segue for. The quote of the week is, The road to forgiveness will always lead straight to your doorstep. If you want some more quotes, check out RemindersForTheSoul.com. So, uh, continuing, prison life is real life amped up. For all that I describe is available outside of those walls as well. Bad food, lack of air conditioning, all of it. It all depends upon how much you choose to punish yourself. Prison is in-your-face manifestation, which may be a little bit more of a metaphysical New Age concept for a lot of people, but... It's one that I tend to agree with, and you know, you may or may not believe that. It's the opportunity to face yourself in the most intense way, and if you're honest, it's the chance to see yourself in a new way because you learn to see others in a new way. Now, I admit, I've always had kind of a fascination with prison life. Um, uh, It's probably because I'm very artistic, and most of my life has been structureless, so to some degree, I view prison and places like that as. almost a forced discipline, sort of a discipline through lack of choice, which in a lot of ways is is kind of what growing up is anyway. You know, you pretty much just have to do what your parents tell you. You, you get to experience rebellion and a few other things. Of course, the consequences are a lot harsher in prison. But I also recognize that this is somewhat of a fantasy. Uh, just like the idea of me winning a battle with a tiger, it's not something that I would actually be very good at prison life. So uh, I'm going to try to avoid that. Um, I have men who, through forgiveness, were able to survive 10 years being wrongfully imprisoned for something they did not do. Not many, only a couple of them. Most were there because they deserved to be. Few of those most would admit that they really did what they were accused of. Many had killed someone. Many learned to do fighting for this nation. The anger that accumulates during war is often hard to deal with when you return home. Substance abuse takes over as sanity wanes, and then you end up where you never thought you would be. The difference between a hero and a criminal is often paper thin to society and even thinner internally, for killing is not glorious. Whether you get medals with ribbons or medals in bars, it's all metal, it all medals with you inside. That's very well stated. Um, I've found as much sanity behind bars, as much humanity and integrity as I've found outside them, and a good deal more willingness with the group that I work with to be honest about themselves than most show on the outside where the trappings provide many more medicators than prisoners have available. 
And this is a part that I think really reflects on what I was talking about last week. Uh, death is about what we kill inside ourselves. The external act always reflects an internal murder. We cut ourselves off from our own humanity. In a metaphysical sense, always remember that there are no victims, only volunteers. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, some really interesting stuff on what we were talking about last time. And a bit of a different perspective than maybe you've heard before. There's a lot of different prison movies out there, and it's usually some badass guy going into prison and just beating the crap out of people and kind of lone gunning it. And that really doesn't happen very often. Um, so the, uh, the reason that this is somewhat of a segue into what I'm talking about today is um, the idea of, well, actually not this in particular, but the last thing that I was talking about, the, uh, the quote from Margaret Mead, no society that feeds its children on tales of successful violence can expect them not to believe that violence in the end is rewarded. Uh, which I think is very interesting if you're talking about the movie Avatar. The movie Avatar in general is, and I'm hoping all of you have seen this by now. If you haven't, you need to go out and see it, like, right now. Uh, just don't even continue listening. Just go out and see that movie because it's, it's awesome. So, um, so uh, okay, sorry. The reason that that fits in with what we're talking about is this is a movie that covers a lot of different bases in terms of what it's about. It it takes a lot of it takes somewhat of a cliche theme and tells it really well. And this is what I really love about James Cameron, his ability to take something that has been almost done to death in the past and turn it into something completely new, which actually reminds me. Um, the uh, movie Fern Gully. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I love that movie. And when I first saw the trailer, Avatar reminded me of that movie so much that uh, I've decided that we're going to listen to Fern Gully music um, while we're talking about this. So I'm going to keep that low so it's not incredibly disturbing. <laughs> I love that movie. Okay. Avatar. Interesting movie. Um, I thought that it pulled a lot from movies like Fern Gully. Uh, I felt that it was also a lot like Jurassic Park in the way that it kind of brought in a lot of the different animals and things. And uh, and I really liked how it, it uh, included yeah, stuff from like Twister and, well, Jurassic Park being a Michael Crichton movie. Um, He's another person I think is very talented when it comes to creating movies that where they kind of describe what's happening naturally, like the different characters kind of tell you what's going on as they're going through it. So you have kind of a natural progression of the storyline that doesn't get in the way of the substance of the movie. A lot of movies don't do that very well. Um, most Michael Crichton books do. Jurassic Park. Uh, his movies haven't been turned into, or his books haven't turned, been turned into really great movies. Uh, Congo timeline, which was a terrible movie, but um, but James Cameron has that same ability. He can take a concept and sort of spoon feed it to you as you're going along, so you get what you need to get as the movie is progressing. And while this is a very cliche theme, you know, kind of an outsider breaks into the group 
and uh, he's with the other people, but then he kind of learns to be with them and decides to kind of side with them in the end. Uh, it's it's practically Ferngully. It's practically a lot of different movies. And it probably would be very cliche if anyone besides James Cameron had done it, but I think in terms of a movie, he pulled that off really well. Um, James Cameron, if any of you don't know, directed Titanic, and that was actually the last large movie that he did. He did a few other things after that, like um, the uh, the show Dark Angel. He kind of produced it and directed a couple episodes. He did some underwater stuff, uh, some, I think an underwater 3D movie, a uh, documentary on the Titanic, a few other things, but none of them were really big blockbuster movies. last movie he did was Titanic, and that was 10 years ago. And during this time that he has been out of movie making, he has been working on the movie Avatar. For the last 10 years, or even before, I think he wrote Avatar a long time before he did any of his other movies. Uh, he also did Abyss, um, yeah, Titanic, Abyss, he did a few others, he did Aliens, he did Terminator, um, what was it, True Lies, some really good action movies, and, you know, Titanic and Abyss. A very versatile director, and very good at the big budget stuff. Now, <coughs> sorry, he's been out of the director scene for 10 years, and he comes back with this Avatar script that he's been working on since he was a kid, which, in a lot of ways, sounds very much like a Disney movie. It is. It is a Disney movie. I mean, this music that we're listening to is, it's, well, maybe not this song, but some of the other songs are almost straight out of the movie. And then he's got the, the requisite... Um, sappy uh, Elton John type song that plays you know at one of the really important moments in the movie kind of like you know Celine Dion's song from Titanic it's just how he puts the movies together uh, but you know even for all that it's an amazing movie the um, basic idea behind the film being kind of a disconnectedness from nature a lot of the characters talk about the fact that in their future they have no connection to Earth or Mother Nature. It's all about, you know, consumerism. Uh, I think he says at some point that, you know, the planet they come from, they killed all the trees, or there's no green there. It's all dead. So this Avatar planet is completely new concept for a lot of people that, have, that grew up somewhere else. And there's no way that they can relate to it. A people that lives in harmony with nature and the planet around them, uh, you know, and they totally don't get the idea of why they can't move from that tree that they've been in. You know, why can't they just pick up and get all their stuff out of there? It's, you know, it's a tree. Anyone can pick any tree anywhere and, and totally be fine. But it's not about the tree. It's about the connection with, with the earth. And it's about, you know, where you grew up and a whole lot of other things. Uh, and this movie is very much a metaphor for a lot of things that have happened in the past. You know, there's so many different cultures that can connect with this idea. I mean, think about Native Americans, you know, an invading people kind of taking your land and kicking you out. The Africans, same kind of thing. It, it ties in with politics, it ties in with, with Bush and with a lot of the stuff that we've been doing in the Middle East and all different kinds of stuff that have happened to us. It's this very large metaphor for many of the situations that we found ourselves in growing up. And there aren't very many movies that can capture that return to nature in a way that isn't stupid, you know, honestly. 
it, most of the movies out there, it's just, I mean, it's either for six-year-olds or it's stupid. And these are the two choices that you have until this movie came along. Now, they did use sort of a common enemy, the military, which, you know, is, I mean, people use Nazis as a common enemy often, but military, politics, all that kind of stuff, these are the people that set the rules and they're structured and they're rigged and they rigid and they come in here and they take and they don't give back and that's the complete difference between avatar and you know the people on avatar and the people that came there to pick up unobtainium that was the name of the rock that they were there for which i thought was hilarious unobtainium um maybe you should have found a different name for that but aside from that yeah military is the enemy um it's it's a theme that's been worked on many, many times in the past. And I talked with someone recently who didn't completely like the ending of the movie, which, which was interesting to me because as far as I can tell, everyone that's seen this movie have loved like every aspect of it, including me. I mean, I, I talk about some of the things in there that are cliche, and but we, even with all that, I mean, with the scope of this movie, you have to forgive them some of those things. Yeah, so um, the idea that she presented was uh, that there's usually two solutions to war. When someone comes in and tries to take something that's yours or that you perceive as yours, you either fight back or uh, passive non-resistance. That's been the way that we've been taught much more recently, the idea of Gandhi, you know, you just kind of take whatever it is that they had to take to give you. But that doesn't mean you're not fighting. It just means that you're not fighting in a way that hurts anyone else. You know, passive non-resistance, teaching by example, all that kind of thing. Uh, these being the two ways that we've known to end conflict. And that only worked because of the enemy that they were presented with at the time. Uh, the enemy was one that could actually understand what the message was that needed to be given. And I don't think that that will work in every single situation. I mean, if you take, you know, Hitler, for instance, the, that wouldn't have worked on him, I'm assuming. I, you know, don't know him personally, so I'm just assuming here. But I don't think that that kind of approach would have worked in that particular situation. So what if there's a third option? And this was the option that they presented, which... Uh, I imagine a lot of people here in Ashland will like. And it's the idea that, you know, what if those same people had gone out to the, the, the camp and just sort of surrounded it and just sort of, you know, surrounded it with love, basically. Which anyone that saw that in a movie, you know, that would automatically become one of those stupid movies that just doesn't make any sense. It's an interesting idea. And I also feel that that wouldn't have worked in the Avatar movie because most people wouldn't have got it. But I do agree that it is another solution. I think that there's a lot of different ways that that could have been approached. And that was the one thing that she felt was wrong with the movie was that, well, one of the things was that it didn't take an approach that was as enlightened as it could be. It went for the lower message, which is the one that most people on the planet can understand, which is, you know, if people fight you, you fight back. The other thing that she had a problem with was the idea that if you fight back, you suddenly have God on your side, which is basically what the movie was saying. You know, he kind of prayed to Iwa and asked for help, and then the, I can't remember her name, what's-her-face, came along and said, you know, she doesn't take sides. 
and then lo and behold he's fighting all the bad guys and all the plants and animals come out and try to help him which sort of is like saying God is on our side or you know their God I mean it very much depends on your interpretation of God there's a lot of different ways that a lot of different things that that could mean a lot of different messages that could have and that's why I kind of think it ties in with what I was talking about with the violence that people teach I mean you teach that the only way to solve conflicts is to win them basically and that's what happened there's a few other things that people pointed out like the idea of the white savior you know this is some white guy that comes in and, and solves all the natives problems which um, is a common theme in movies uh, I don't think this particular movie meant it in any sort of racist way it was just a way that made sense I look at it more as an outsider coming in with different perspective uh, you know it could have been a black guy just as easily as a white guy or any other type of person just someone who wasn't a part of their system someone who could see things in a different way come up with different solutions and you know who viewed the enemy in a way that that made sense uh, yeah, so a few different ideas and different takes on that particular movie. Um, <laughs> this music is getting a little bit annoying, actually. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip this. <clears throat> okay, so. The other thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is some of the technology behind it. The technology is something that had never been created before. Something that James Cameron built. Uh, a system that allows you to view stuff in 3D. I'm just going to turn this off. This is terrible music. That is so much better. Um, so the, the tech behind this thing. Um, Two cameras side by side in the same position that your eyes are, which hasn't been able to be done before because of the the size of the camera equipment. They couldn't put two cameras next to each other because there wasn't enough room to keep all the equipment that they needed to run. So what he did was he separated the lenses, moved them out far enough to where he could put them about two inches apart, which is about how far your eyes are, in order to simulate actual eye movement. Not only that, but 3D cameras have only ever been able to look straight forward. You have two cameras side by side that are looking straight forward, sort of like two train tracks that just sort of go out into infinity, which is not how your eyes view things. Your eyes both focus on a particular object. They, Their point of focus converges in a particular place. So he was able to make two cameras that could move independently and converge or focus on things, whether they're close up or farther apart, in the same way that your eyes are able to do this. Uh, other than computer animated movies, this hasn't been done before. That being the other thing, this movie is almost completely computer animated. About 95%. And on top of that, most about 75% of all statistics are made up in the moment. So yeah, about 95% of uh, the movie is computer animated, give or take. The... Uh, <clears throat> The difference being that they spent so much money on the computer animation, more than they've ever done in any other movie, well, maybe except for Tron, which is coming out pretty soon, uh, but the level of realism is amazing. And by the way, I wouldn't suggest seeing this in 2D. It's okay. It's a good movie in 2D, but you see a lot more of the flaws in the animation in 2D. This movie is really built for 3D. And I'm actually not even looking forward to get this on DVD because you have to see it on a big screen. 
any animated movie when shrunk down to the size of a TV, you pick a lot more, you pick up a lot more of the animation than anything else. You get kind of that 3D, that CG sheen that things tend to have. But in theaters and in 3D, this movie is flawless. The, you know, the rocks, the animals, everything looks immaculate, which kind of brings us to where this whole thing is heading. I mean, this computer animation is this giant thing that's really starting to pick up. It's, um, the, the problem with that being that it's getting closer and closer to this thing they call the uncanny valley which is when something fake is presented as real, but you know it's fake, so it kind of creeps you out or makes you uneasy. It's when stuff that's computer animated starts to get so realistic that you know it's fake, but it's just now creepy, like robots with human faces, you know? That's just creepy if they're trying to imitate a smile or something. The stuff that makes them slightly different from who you are, uh, you know, as people, is the stuff that your brain picks up. It's not anything perceptive, nothing that you can put your finger on. But you know it's fake, and it makes you feel weird. And that's where things are heading. I mean, I imagine a future where we can watch the 7th, 8th, and ninth Star Wars movies with Mark Hamill and, you know, all the different actors and stuff, but they look exactly the same as they did in the first, second, third, well, fourth, fifth, and sixth Star Wars movies, the originals. They look exactly the same because they're completely computer animated. You just need them to do the voiceovers and you've got yourself a fully 3D movie that, you know, 3D actors, realistic. That's where we're heading. We just have to get past that uncanny valley thing. Um, <clears throat> the next step, of course, is having completely fake actors in movies and things like that, which is going to be difficult until we can create realistic artificial intelligence and, you know, voices and things like that, which hasn't been done yet. So, yeah, I guess I don't have a whole lot more to say on Avatar. Um, There's a phone ringing in here. I'm not going to get that because I don't know how to. It's, um... hmm. Sorry, I lost the song I was going to see um, play in just a second here. Hold on. <laughs> there we are. a decorated general with a heart of gold that likened him to all the stories he told of past battles won and lost and legends of old a seasoned veteran in his own time on the battlefield he gained respectful fame with many medals of bravery and stripes to his name he grew a beard as soon as he could to cover the scars on his face and always urged his men on but on the eve of a great battle with the infantry and dream the old general tossed in his sleep and lesser with its meaning he awoke from the night to tell what he had seen Walked slowly out of his tent All the men held tall with their chests in the air With the courage in their blood and a fire in their stare And it was a great morning and they all wondered how they would fare To the old general told them to go home He said I have seen the eye 
others And I have discovered That this fight is not worth fighting And I've seen them others And I will no other To follow me where I'm going So Take a shower and shine your shoes You got no time to lose If you are young then you must be living Shower and shine your shoes You got no time to lose If you are young man you must be living Go now you are forgiven But the men stood fast with their guns on their shoulders Not knowing what to do with the contradicting orders The general said he would do his own duty But he extended no further The men could go as they pleased But not a man moved Their eyes gazed straight ahead Till one by one they stepped back And not a word was said And the old general was left with his own words Echoing in his head He then prepared to fight He said I have seen the others And I have discovered That this fight is not worth fighting And I've seen them others And I will no other To follow me where I'm going So Take a shower and shine your shoes You got no time to lose You are young and you must be living Yeah Take a shower and shine your shoes You got no time to lose You are young and you must be living that has some information about the Avatar movie, which I, I really liked, and I wanted to put him on and have him talk about his perspective. He had a couple of points that he wanted to make. So, um, sorry, what was your name again? Oh, it's, it's Brandon. Brandon, hi. Um, so, uh, go ahead and just tell me what you were telling me earlier. Okay. Um, generally, I think uh, the story of Avatar is kind of a, a generic story of imperialism, and in that sense, it's going to be analogous to uh, basically a lot of the history of Western civilization, if you, if you end up looking at it. So it's easily comparable to Iraq or, you know, the situation with Americans and, you know, the, the Native Americans. Uh, but, you know, it's also basically the history of the, the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just thought that was an interesting uh, piece to point out is that, you know, it's, it's going to seem analogous to a lot of stuff just by the nature of the story itself. Right. Um, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, the other piece, though, you, you were talking about how you see 3D as kind of being the next big wave in uh, cinema. Um, I don't think new emerging technology that I know Sony has been investing a lot in. Uh, really, I've only seen it over in Japan 
You know, they always have things before us. Right. Um, but it's uh, it's not exactly 3D. It's kind of, um, I don't know how they do it, but it looks like you're actually looking into a box, like like your TV actually, you know, extends back into the wall and there's a bunch of space in there. And it looks like there's actually something in there. Um, so I think that tops might be the next uh, big wave because that, that actually is coming out about the same time that we're seeing this 3D. So... Um, 3D is cool. I think it, it has a lot of interesting effects, but I think it might be usurped by that, um, you know, in the coming decade. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I also think, like, 3D glasses and things like that are uh, along the same lines. Like yes. Yeah. Well, not just, I mean, not just the kind that you have to sit in front of a TV to use, but actual 3D glasses, which haven't been used very much because they tend to cause a lot of migraines and things like that. Exactly, but, um, yeah, and dizziness and everything, yeah. Right, but I think that's where it's heading. Um, that... Uh, I read something in Popular Science about a technology that they recently came out with that has a whole bunch of different... It's like a, a whole bunch of different cameras, which they've able, able to uh, make really small so that they can actually take a bunch of pictures of a single scene at the same time and then splice them all together in a computer so you're actually able to walk through the world that you're seeing. Oh my gosh. Which is a really interesting technology and it's, it's going to be a few years before they're able to actually do anything with it. But yeah. they've been able to do this to where if you combine that with computer animation and you know all that kind of stuff, the thing can actually sense how far, like depth perception in the yeah. actual... Um, um, you know the the recording, and yeah. then it actually creates a 3D world to support all the images that are in there. So you can just walk through the whole scene that you're seeing. Wow, that, that's a lot like what the Wachowskis did. I mean, it's a step up from that. But you know, in the Matrix, where they had right. like, the range of cameras. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea, and and is is probably very close to where we're heading. So, um, cool. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you calling in, and um, yeah. if feel free to call in again sometime. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. So, um, let's see. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start us on the um, radio show, which is um, uh, the next episode of Danny Kay. Which is... Let's see. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, Danny Kay. Uh, so... For those of you that don't know, he was one of the most popular entertainers in the United States and England during the 1940s and 50s. He's, uh, he does music, he does uh, acting, he does dancing, incredibly talented. He's done a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and this is his radio show, which I love. I've been, we've been listening to it for the last couple of times. So this is the third episode in his radio show. It's called Auction Sale. Just give me a second to get this set up here. Let's see. This is the Danny Kay Show with Eve Arden, Lionel Stander, yours truly Ken Niles, and the outstanding music of America's top band, Harry James and his music makers. Fine Brews blended into one great beer presents 33 fine talents blended into one great comedian, Danny Kay.
gosh, Danny, we've walked all over town. We can't find a movie we haven't seen. Why is that? Well, I guess maybe we saw them all, huh? Yeah, but it, but ain't it funny? Every theater you took me to was playing the same picture, up in arms. <laughs> well, that's a coincidence, isn't it? You want to see it again? Well, gee, Danny, how about seeing a gangster picture? Shooting, bang, bang, and all that stuff. Hey, look at that banner. There's just the kind of picture I like. Action today. And what a cast. Flynn, Raft, and Cagney. Lionel, that sign says auction today. Oh. And that's Flynn, Rafferty, and Carney. They're not actors. They're auctioneers. <laughs> well, what are they doing in a movie? Lionel, it is not a movie. It's an auction sale. Oh, I, I heard about them auctions, but I've never seen one. Let's go in and watch. All right, but listen. Yeah. Don't let them talk into buying anything. Come on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this next article here is a very rare one indeed for these times. I don't have to tell you how hard it is to get any sort of mechanical appliances, but we have here a practically new article that all of you who have farms or ranches should really bid for. I am referring to this genuine 1943 model gentle action milking machine. Gee, Danny, do they get milk from machines these days? No, Lionel. First the machine gets it from the cow. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> All right, now, come, come, let's get going. I want a good, solid bid for this mechanical marvel. The farmer's helper, the cow's friend. Now, what do I hear? $75. $75, $75. Do I hear an 80? 80. I got an 80. I got an 80. Do I hear 85? Do I hear 85? Do I hear 90? 90. Thank you. Do I hear Come 95? on, Lionel. We'd better get over to the studio. 95. Oh, wait a minute, Danny. This hear... is fun. Do I hear 100? Do I hear 100? 100. 100. Do I hear 110? Do I hear a 110? Hey, Danny, what time is it? 1.15. So to the blonde. <laughs> For $115, just give the cashier your check for $115, my boy. Who? Who, me? Yes, son. You'll never regret buying this milking machine. Oh, wait a minute, mister. I don't want a milking machine. My, my friend just asked me what time it was, and I told him. Young man, if you knew what time it was, you wouldn't be here. Now, <laughs> just see the cashier. Oh, but wait a minute. I don't need a milking machine. I haven't got a cow. I haven't got a farm. Just see the and cashier, even if I had a cow, I wouldn't and know what to do. Supposing I do get a cow, Well, Danny, here we are at the studio. Boy, when you tell Eve Arden that you bought a milking machine, she'll really blow a top. Oh, now, look, Lionel, how about you going in and telling her? You're much more of a diplomat than I am. Well, I'm much more of a coward than you are, too. You tell her. Oh, all right. You stay out here with the machine, and if anyone comes along and wants to know what time it is, sell it to him. <laughs> okay. Well, here I go. Into the lion's mouth. Hi, Evie. Oh, hello, Danny. Where have you been? Oh, Lionel and I were out looking for a movie, but we couldn't find one we hadn't seen. So uh, we just walked along and trying to find a movie we hadn't seen or anything. So I had to open my big mouth and we wound up doing some shopping. Well, where's Lionel now? Oh, he's outside with it. <laughs> outside with what? With it. I-T It Now do you want me to spell cat? C-A Will you stop? Now what did you buy? Another suit? Not exactly Well, is it something you wear? Well, 
I can't wear it, but it... <laughs> Danny, will you stop stalling? What did you buy? Can I stop there and not try for the $64? <laughs> no. What did you buy? Well, I... No coaching from the audience, please. What did you buy? I'll be sorry. Let's put it this way, Evie. When a waitress asks you what you want to drink, what does she usually say? Coffee, tea, or milk? That's it, milk. Now, where does milk come from? A cow. That's right, but who gets the milk from the cow? Whoever milks the cow. That's right. But instead of a whoever, I bought a whatever. A whatever? Yes. You are now looking at a man who has legally adopted a milking machine. A milking machine? Are you out of your mind, and why do I ask? Well, Lionel asked me what time it was. I told him, and boom, I had a milking machine. And boom, you had a milking machine. Yes. Listen, Lum and Abner, you take that whatever back to wherever you bought it and get your money back right now. Oh, I wished I could. Hey, Danny, a guy just came up to me and asked me what time it was. I told him 5.10, and nothing happened. <laughs> Listen, Stander, come in here and bring that electric octopus with you. Okay. Ain't it a beauty, Miss Arden? Yeah, Eve, you'll love this thing when you see how it works. Hey, hey, put the plug in the socket there, Lionel. Okay. Contact! Contact! Mr. K, would you mind giving me back my skirt? Now, don't get excited, Evie. I'll have it out in a minute. Oh, damn it. There, see? Hello, everybody. Hello, Harry. Look, hey, Harry, you got here just in time. Look what I've got. Well, I'll be darned. What is it, an electric bagpipe? Not unless you want to play cow-cow boogie. <laughs> information, Harry, our cowless Mr. K has bought himself a milking machine. Hey, Danny, what are you going to do with it? Milk coconuts? Oh, look, I got an idea. We could take these little rubber suction nozzles, put them on somebody's head, turn it on, you could give them a wonderful scalp treatment. <laughs> are you kidding? A milking machine for a scalp treatment? Certainly, it's an innovation. Homogenized dandruff. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. Now, Danny, genius number one, and Lionel, genius number one and a half, take that infernal machine back this minute. Oh, I think she means it, Lionel. Come on, we better go. Okay. Well, we're back, Evie. Everything's all right now. Yep, everything's hunky-dunky. Oh, you got rid of the milking machine, huh? Oh, we did better than that. Open the door, Lionel. No. What is that? Well, it ain't Frank Sinatra, sister. <laughs> and now, neighbors, our Pat's Blue Ribbon Blues salesman, Danny Kay, assumes a more dramatic role as he takes his magnifying glass in hand, dons his monocle and gum shoes, and presto changeo, he becomes that famous super sleuth, Inspector H.I.J.K. of Scotland Yard. <laughs> you ready, Danny? Right, right, quite, quite. <clears throat> Quite right or right quite. <clears throat> Harry, the downbeat, Harry. Hey, how did you recognize my voice before I spoke? 
Obvious, my boy, obvious. Know that voice anywhere. Oh, I never thought of that. What's up, Chief? Outrageous crime! <laughs> the case of the missing toothpick. Missing toothpick? <laughs> yes, missing toothpick. Pointed problem, sticky thing, what? <laughs> Most daring robbery in years. The toothpick was stolen right out from under the chap's nose. <laughs> Amazing! Where are you, Sergeant? Trafalgar Square. <laughs> By the clock. I'm standing right under the six. Good work, Sergeant. Good work. I'll be over before you can say Jack Robinson. Jack. Hello, Sergeant. <laughs> Sorry I'm late. Fog, you know. <laughs> Beastly stuff. Can't even see Big Ben. Wonder what time it is. Bong. Bong. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Sergeant, do you have a heck waiting? Yes, Chief, right by the lamppost. Blast this fog. Where is the lamppost? <laughs> Thanks, Rover. <laughs> Come, Sergeant. Let's hop into the heck and highest hence. Hold up, Nelly. Step in, Governor. Right here. Oops. <whistles> Blasted manhole. <laughs> Rush. Can't you make that horse go faster? Right, El. Get it up, Nelly. <laughs> Amazing horse. Here's the house now, Chief. Oh, uh, thank you. Pull up, driver. Right, El. Come Hold up, Nelly. Good evening, Inspector Kay. Good evening, Styles. You'll find Mr. James Horn in the bodies in the dining room, sir. Bodies? What bodies? <laughs> well, there's uh, Mr. Ames, Mr. Beeman, uh, Mr. Cecil, Mr. Devers. You see, sir, I took the liberty of stacking them alphabetically. Uh, <laughs> neat work, neat work. <laughs> neat work, yes. Come on, Sergeant. Ah, Mr. James Horn. Ah, Inspector K. Oh, that's very good, very good. <laughs> Enough of these formalities. <laughs> when did you first miss your toothpick? When the 13 guests dropped dead. Oh. It was an awful shock. I was greatly attached to that toothpick. Family heirloom, you know. Uh, yes, no, just what you mean, exactly what you mean. Generation to generation, hand to mouth. Cheek to cheek. Cherry dance. No, no. <laughs> no, thanks, Anne. No. Oh, that's quite all right. Very well, Sergeant. Did you find any clues? Not yet, Chief. Well, it's a very good thing we brought our own, you know. What clues do we have left over from our last case? <laughs> well, let's see. Two tire treads, a cigar ash, a guilty look, a shriek in the dark, and a footprint from Grauman's Chinese Theater. 
old sergeant. Top ho! <laughs> Scatter them about a bit, will you? Okay, Chief. Three fine clues blended into one great beer. Tell me, Mr. James Horn, how many of your butlers have been murdered? Six, including the one I have now. Uh, but, sir, I haven't been murdered yet. <laughs> Poor fellow spoke too soon. Has he been done in? Yes, I think he's been done in. Unless he always wears a knife in his back. Mr. James Horn, I have reason to suspect that butler didn't like you. But uh, why do you say that, Inspector? A uh, very simple matter of deduction, old boy. The thumbprint on his nose. Well, uh, what, uh, what does that have to do with it? Why, think of it, man. Just think of it. It's his own thumbprint. I'm afraid this confirms my worst suspicions. Hey, Chief, I think I found the toothpick. Ouch! Take your hand off my leg, you blighter. <laughs> and uh, who are you, young lady? I'm Eva, the cook. Mr. James Orn, I'm unable to find the carving knife. Have you seen it? Uh, you'll find it right there in the butler's back. Oh, so it is. I'm always misplacing it. <laughs> Chief, look at this slip of paper. I found it in the kitchen. Uh, let me take one look at it. Oh, yes, a ha, a hum, a hoo, a her. <laughs> Two pounds of cyanide, three pounds of arsenic, a pint of iodine, a dash of carbolic acid. Hmm. I hardly know what to make of this. What do you make of it, cook? Salad dressing. <laughs> Aha, now I recognize you. You want Eva Harden, alias Salad Sal, alias Hector McSnively, alias Horrible Hector, alias Harry the Fink, alias the Ipswich Snitch. Oh, why must you keep pounding me like this day and night? Night and day, you are the one always pounding me. <laughs> I tell you, I didn't do it. You won't make me talk, no matter how much you torture me, how much you threaten me, how much you browbeat me, how much you question me, how much you... Do I sound like Ida Lupino? You sound more like Ida Cantor. Sergeant! Sergeant! Slip the bracelets on her. I left them home, Chief. I just slipped my arm around her waist. That's a stout fellow. Stout girl, too. Sergeant! I'm afraid that ends the case. Amazing! Hey, hey, just a minute. What about my toothpick? It's a very simple matter, Mr. James. Go upstairs to the cook's quarters and you'll find your toothpick in the middle drawer of the dresser. And now we'll be on our way. Tally ho, pip. What? Hey, yes. Tally ho, pip, pip. What? Ho, ho. Tally, pip, pip. Hey, ho. Ho, ho. Tally, pip, ho. What? Right. Topping. Hey, yes. Chief. That was amazing. But how could you be so sure the toothpick was in the middle drawer? Very simple, Sergeant. There are only three drawers in the dresser. Do you have any reason to believe it was in the top drawer? No. Do you have any reason to believe it was in the bottom drawer? No. Well...
Danny. Amazing. But, you know, those mystery plays, they kind of scare me. Oh, you poor kid. What are you getting at, Kenneth? Well, I, I'd like to hear you do something soft and sweet and soothing. <laughs> you All right. I, uh, if Harry will give me some soothing music, we can kind of make this a little soft, a little sweet, and a little Russian. Gesundheit. <laughs> I should like to delve into the Slavic food and do a song that my father wrote for me when he was nine weeks old. He used to take me on his knee and say, Kolya, my little gypsy, it's time for you to become a man. Time for you to go out in the world and learn the facts of life. So I packed my little Karzinka and I left I wandered over hills and dales, small villages and pretty cities. And then I met my first woman. <laughs> she was gorgeous, sensationally beautiful. When she walked was like a little gazelle strolling in the pastures. And when she spoke her voice. Her voice was like the voice of angels. Soft and mellow! <laughs> she used to croon this plaintive gypsy melody. Dina, is there anyone fina? In the state of Carolina, if there is and you know her, show her to me, oh, Dina. With her Dixie eyes blazing, how I love to sit and gaze in to the ease of dinner late. I know death every night, oh, oh, why do I shake with pride? Because my dinner, my change your mind about me. Hey, hey, Pap's blue ribbon, dear. If she wanted to cheat her, I would hop that ocean winner. Just to be with my really to give it to get it a little bit of a hit bit, a little bit for fame, to get it a little bit for sound, to get it a little bit for sound, to give him the gout, got us gay, how to gay, say, hit it a little bit, 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 a little I've always loved singing. You know, when I was a kid, my parents thought I'd be a great singer someday. Well, uh, why weren't you, Lionel? My voice didn't change. <laughs> well, it's not too late to change it yet, Lionel. All you need are a few lessons in voice culture. Not with these ingrown tonsils. Ah, uh, no, don't give up so easily. Why don't you do as I do? Repeat a well-turned phrase over and over, like... If you want to know why Pap's Blue Ribbon always is tops in flavor, the answer is blending. 
It takes no less than 33 different brews, all blended together as only Pabst can do it, to achieve the true and perfect beer flavor you enjoy in Pabst Blue Ribbon. Now, uh, repeat that. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not that emotional. I'm an introvert. Well, introvert or extrovert, it's, it's all in the phrasing. Now, listen carefully. No matter where you go, pause, you can order Pabst with confidence. Deep breath. Serve it with pride. Count two. That's difficult. For there is no finer beer, short pause, no finer blend than Pabst Blue Ribbon. Now try that. Okay, I'll try it. No matter where you go, pause there. You can order it with confidence, deep breath, save it with pride, count two, for there is no finer blend, pause, breath, than Pabst Blue Ribbon. Excellent! Excellent! <laughs> I'm going to cut us off there. We're getting pretty close to uh, the end of the show here. Uh, it's 8 o'clock. Um, up next is something awesome, which I... Ah, ha, ha. There's a calendar in here. Whistling in the Dark is up next. Um, just a couple more minutes, and then I'm done. Um, let's see. The... Uh, <clears throat> Spell speak segment of the week, which is possibly my favorite part of the show, is um, here we go. Hopefully, you have your pencils. Um, okay, M A N W H O L I E A R O U N D A L L D A Y P L A Y I N G W I T H T O O L N O T N E C E S S A R Y M E C H A N I C. I'm not going to repeat that, so hopefully, you got it. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to my show. Tune in next week, same time, same place, where I will be much better prepared. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. You've been listening to The Alternative Show, which would not be possible without substantial donations from Antiseptic and Earl E. Bird, created by Aaron Tires and Billy Club, with producer Terry Cloth, editor Mae Belline, our research team of Barbara Blacksheep and Shirley U. Jess, librarian Anita Honjob, production coordinator Matt Tress, studio engineers Idaho and Randy Peters, special thanks to Howie Kisses, High Marks, Phil R. Monick, Harry P. Ness, Hugh Suck, and my good friend Richard Pease, patent lawyer Meg O'Tun, Mary Kay cosmetic saleswoman doors closed and of course our French teacher Mademoiselle Viva La France a very special thanks to Al Gore for inventing the internet without which this nearly live streaming broadcast would not be possible this show is broadcast live on location at Walt Disney's Tomorrowland theme park in Disneyland France la piscine dans le Disneyland Resort c'est plus bon magnifique featuring the host with the most Trevor S. Thomas and yours truly Alan Wrench you're listening to KSKQ 94.9 FM Ashland Radio a product of the Multicultural Association of Oregon thank you and good night we're too busy singing 